Hi, this is Jason. Before we start today's episode, I want to let you know that Rattle and Pedal will be taking a hiatus for the month of August. In the meantime, if you'd like to give feedback on the podcast, please check out our audience survey at rattleandpedal.com slash survey. Now on with today's episode. Listening to Rattle and Pedal, Diversion Thoughts on Marketing and Growing Professional Services Firms. Your hosts are Jason Malicki and Jeff McKay. All right, Jeff. So Batman had the Joker. <laughs> the Avengers have Thanos. I have to mention the Avengers. And in our recent episodes, we've been talking about marketing heroes. So today we are going to dig into marketing villains, the dark side of marketing. And Jason's true geek comes through. <laughs> well, my son has just completed a 25 movie marathon on Avengers over the course of the summer. So I know a lot about those guys right now. Oh my gosh. Poor kid. <laughs> I guess kids need, need stuff like that. So you want to go first? Never. And miss an opportunity to beat you up of <laughs> what you say. Uh-uh. All right. So I've got a pretty long list of villains here. And and I guess maybe before I actually do that, I'll take a step back. I looked at this sort of under the lens, a very broad lens of just maybe things that have influenced our society or influenced our culture or affected marketing in, in ways that that I've either found maybe kind of frustrating or annoying. Sometimes some of these things are actually incredibly successful marketing initiatives or incredibly successful marketing campaigns. But at some point, they kind of jumped the shark and became this kind of annoying thing that we now deal with as a result. And so my first one sort of falls into that category. So my first one, I am going to call out an agency in LA named RPA. I don't know if you're familiar with this agency. I was not. I had to do some digging to find them. You ever heard of these guys? No. Okay. Well, these guys, I, I believe I could be entirely wrong. So, so if I am wrong, I, I apologize for picking on them. Are the agency that coined the farmer's insurance audio tag that we are farmers. That is so incredibly annoying. <laughs> it drives me crazy. And it drives me crazy because it actually, it doesn't say anything. It just says, we are farmers. But everybody can remember that little thing. So, and I'll tell a quick story to say why this drives me crazy. And it's so embedded in the, in the consumer psyche. It's unbelievable to me how successful this tagline is and how really meaningless it is. So my kids do this program in their school. There's a couple layers of this program. I'll cut, summarize it real quick. But in fifth grade, they study a culture and then they have to create a product that would be authentic to that culture. And then at a school-wide Chautauqua, they come up with like a little advertisement to present their product to the school and encourage people to kind of come and check it out or buy it. So it's sort of like this kind of multi-layered experience for them. And I kid you not, of all these kids getting up there and making this demonstration, I'll bet you a third of them had done some satirical takeoff on that farmer's audio tag. So it was just mind-blowing how successful that tagline is and how it doesn't say anything. So that's my villain number one. Wow. I didn't see that one coming. <laughs> How could you have seen that one coming? Now, the, I, oh, I will God. say on the flip side of that, the one thing that it really dives into is, is something that I do think has been entirely lost for a lot of today's generation of marketers, which is just the power of audio tags. I mean, they're so incredibly powerful because they do stay inside your head and they do linger for so long and they can have such an impact on your memorability of a brand and what it does or, or, or doesn't do. It's a really powerful sort of old world advertising tactic that I just don't think it's leveraged as much today as it used to be, which is why when 
when agencies do get them right, in this case, they did get it right because obviously it's really working for them from a memorability standpoint, it becomes incredibly annoying. <laughs> so. mm-hmm. Well, what's cool about that ad series is I think it's incredibly original. You can't help but remember some of these real claims that they're sharing. Their spokesman is an Oscar winning actor. Now he, they had gotten him before he, he got the Oscar, but it is memorable. And it's that sound is associated with them. And I, I couldn't agree more that memorable sound, you know, think of the Intel inside is another one that our people have probably listened to, but they have very limited applicability in professional services because those are audio. They require a voluminous amount of advertising, whether that's on radio or television, that most professional services firms just can't sustain or never, never would. But I think it's a, it's a good villain. It's a good villain. So we should probably tell the audience, villain is a little overstated. And what we will not do is call out specific people for behaviors per se. I kind of just did that, didn't I? But but yeah. <laughs> but again, I, I tried to couch it under the context of the ad annoys me, but I have to commend them because it's really successful and they did a great job. So I'm sort of picking on them. I'm also saying, hey, in a way, when you've made something so pervasive that it gets to the point of annoyance, then you've clearly struck creative gold. <laughs> so yeah, that's worth something yeah. to say. So having said that, listeners, our villains are not bad people. And if we do mention a name, they may represent a category, not necessarily themselves. So that's important to point out. We don't want to get in trouble. But having said that, that never stopped us before, did it? All right. So it's my turn? Yeah. Okay. Villain number one, top of my charts is the monopolist known as Google. I hate Google, but I love Google. (laughs) Tell me more. Google is a monopoly in its truest sense. It controls so much of the online experience. And it is a tool and a nemesis for, I think, marketers. And you have written some really good stuff on this, Jason, at Rattleback about the industry leaders are who Google say are the industry leaders. The old rankings of firms that appear in, you know, city business journals no longer are the true arbiters of rank that Google is. And Google has so much power with their algorithm that who shows up on that first page and, you know, who gets clicked. And it's to me, it's just too much power. And we've seen of late how they're also exercising political power and changing actual search results. And it's been great for smaller firms, I think, that want to break through if they can niche on some kind of specific subject or thinking they can rise fairly quickly. It's very difficult, but they can. But to me, the way Google set up, the rich get richer and dominate that first page anyway, even if they're not, you know, number one or number two, because of their their brand equity, their reputable clicks for searchers. So I could go on and on about Google and their dominance and how they exploit personal information, but I'll stop there. 
Well, the interesting thing about Google and, and, and the way I framed it is that they're the central hub on the world's information network, excluding China. And what that means is in a network economy, most of the spoils go to the central hub. So, so essentially, no matter how much revenue you as a professional services firm or a thought leadership marketer, you can drive to your firm using Google as an unbelievable channel to create interest and awareness for your thought leadership. Google is taking home a hundred times that by being that central hub. So they've they've really radically changed sort of the, the classic economic structure of business. And that's something that you know has really emerged in the network economy as as a as a pretty significant sort of macro issue. I think the other thing that's interesting about Google is is that yes, it has become the arbiter of quality in the minds of clients, in my opinion. But what's fascinating about that is the way Google evaluates quality is not how people evaluate quality. So you evaluate quality of thinking based on maybe who published it. You say, well, if HBR published it, it must be really, really good. Or if it came from McKinsey or it came from Accenture, or I really know this guy, Shelley Palmer. I, I really trust the things that Shelley writes and I really believe in him as a person. So you have ways that you evaluate quality, maybe writing style, your evaluations of the thinking. Google evaluates quality based on inbound links, H1 tags, website authority. I mean, all kinds of technical factors that are proxies for how humans evaluate quality, but they're not replacements. And it's a little bit scary how much we've, as people, how much authority we've given Google in our lives to be the arbiter of quality on so many dimensions. And that's probably the part that's probably most concerning. I think the other layer to Google that we haven't touched on that is important to touch on as, as a villain is, you know, Google is probably the poster child for data as currency in the economy, right? You know, I mean, they literally built the Android operating system and gave it away for free to hardware manufacturers in order to get access to the data streams that it represented. I fully anticipate that was their play on the car front as well. Although I think that the car companies looked at what happened to the hardware manufacturers and said, whoa, I don't want to do that, which is why you're seeing that maybe not move as, as quickly as it has. But this notion that, hey, I should get this amazing piece of software and all this amazing stuff for free as long as I just click this button that I accept this 7,000-page data privacy agreement where they're basically going to sell me <laughs> as a product. I mean, you're the product on Google, right? It is absurd. And yet we can't really undo it now. I mean, it's, it's, it is what it is. And undoing it now is virtually impossible. And it's very scary how our data, our click streams, our search behaviors, our history, everything that we say and do and interact with online and off is being pandered up and sold to advertisers by these companies. And we sort of just let it happen. There's not a whole lot we can do to change that really in the foreseeable future, in my opinion. So that would be the other layer to Google that I would argue is is evil. <laughs> okay. Well, that was that was intense. Those are some good ones. <laughs> the stage is set. Yeah, don't do evil. I'm not even really sure where to go from here. Why don't you take a stab at another one? I'll let you go twice. All right. I'm going to risk alienating some of our listeners, but I'm going to do it anyway. One of the biggest marketing villains for me are spunky marketers. <laughs> I don't even know what that is. They're the extroverts. They love to throw parties. They have the candy bowl on their desk and they're just always charged and up and cheerleading and carrying on. There is a time and a place for that, but I feel like those types of marketers, particularly in professional services firms, become kind of a stereotype for marketers. And if they are in a firm first, they ruin marketing for us more introverted and analytical 
marketers. And people come to expect party throwers, cheerleaders as marketers. And I've never been that way. And I will probably never be that way. It's just not who I am. And this probably says more about my insecurity than spunky marketers as a group. But I don't know what your experience is, but I just hate following behind the spunky marketer. Well, I'll frame it as as marketers who are, I'll just say more style than substance is, is really what I find to be a little bit disheartening at times. You know, there's, I remember we had a client once where we were doing a branding project and it was a pretty large diversified firm. And we were really trying to dig in deep into the point of view for the, at the firm level, the value proposition at the practice levels. So there's just a lot of very deep critical thought that had to go into figuring out how we were going to position this firm relative to its peers in the marketplace. And the marketer, great person. I liked her a lot. Incredibly good person, incredibly talented in many ways. But I remember she pulls me aside in, in this strategy meeting I'm running and says, you know, she's like, I just need the answer. Just just find me the answer. I the French <laughs> yeah. And I'm kind of looking at her going like, I. it was like she didn't really want to be in the details. She just wanted me to magically, you know, wave the wand and give her the answer. And I'm like, well, I need you to work with me on this. I need you to kind of like get, you know, focused in here and really you know dig into it. But she just didn't want to do that. And so it was, it's not really a criticism, right? Because, I mean, she had she had everything you said. She had... Tremendous energy, you know, just tremendous enthusiasm. Boy, could she sell ideas into the firm, but mm-hmm. she just didn't want to dig into that layer below of, of the hard work that we had to figure out. And that always makes me a little uncomfortable only because we do want the client to be engaged in that level of critical thought because we don't have all the answers, right? I mean, we, we have strong opinions, but we don't know everything about the firm and we need the marketer to, to have deep working knowledge of, of the practices, of all the practices. And mm-hmm. I think that's that's something that well, maybe deep working knowledge is the wrong phrase, but a strong working knowledge of the firm so that they can really give critical feedback on the things we're doing. So I don't know if that mm-hmm. framed what you were saying, but that's that's sort of what I've seen in that regard. I would just sort of add that, like you said, that kind of notion of that that cliche of the marketer as partier or whatever, and you go to some marketing events and it's just, we're going to have this happy hour and this party and that party and this and that and this. And I'm like, okay, where's the substance, guys? Like, Can we have like a meaningful conversation here about you know, thought leadership? And no one wants to, right? So that, that's, I think, the group that you're kind of picking on a little bit. But but there's a, there's a time and a place for those people and they create a lot of value in other ways. And so I don't want to imply that that's the group of people that we want to alienate or ignore. Uh, in the marketing community. So I don't know if that made sense. I agree. I think that was a nice layer to add to that. You're listening to Rattle and Pedal, divergent thoughts on growing your professional services firm. Your hosts are Jason Malicki, principal of Rattleback, the marketing agency for professional services firms, and Jeff McKay, former CMO and founder of strategy consultancy, Prudent Pedal. If you find this podcast helpful, please help us by telling a friend and rating us on iTunes. Thank you. Now back to Jason and Jeff. We don't have that much more time, so we probably only have time for maybe one or two more. So do you have any that are burning to share? And if not, I'll offer a couple of ones that have been kind of working at me a little bit. You're saying that to control time because you think if I throw out my brilliant one, it'll eat up too much time. I just know you like to hear yourself talk and I know you'll probably wait for <laughs> at least 10 minutes <laughs> and I won't okay. get a word in edgewise. All right. So I'm going to throw this one out quickly just to spite you. One of my biggest villains are sales trainers (laughs) and particularly 
those sales trainers who were lone wolves had a successful sales career and then think everybody else should sell like I sell. They write a book and we know some of these people, I'm not going to throw out names. They have a blog and they just spew this silliness around sales and sales technique, whether it's closing because they're super closers or they're big networkers and this is how you network or whatever it is. I just wish they would go away. They have the right to pitch their wares. But to me, they're villains because what they're selling and they're good at selling it is not useful to the general audience because it worked for them and it would work for such a small sliver. I think there are a few really disciplined and thoughtful sales methodologies that actually work in professional services. Most of them do not. So they're big villains. Yeah. I mean, I think I would, maybe I'll layer on a couple of things there. One is I sort of see the villain of whenever you try to layer on methodologies from other places into professional services in the selling environment, that's usually not going to work real well. We've been in firms where they've engaged with someone and and, and the methodology was, was very clearly a product-based selling model or a product-based marketing model that was sort of pushing solutions, pushing features and benefits. And that's just never going to work for a consulting-based firm that's selling, you know, solutions to to large complex problems. But it's very attractive to buy as as a firm because you think, boy, if we could just sell this practice better, we would be doing so much better. But it's Mm -hmm. usually a a road to destruction. I would kind of that's how I sort of lump that. And I have a tactical thing downstream from that that I had as a villain that I make fun of all the time. And I'm just it's it's a phrase. It, It comes off of these very tactical sales emails that I get all the time, and I'm sure you do as well. And the phrase reads something like this. Can you tell me who at your agency was responsible for, insert obscure tactical thing, influencer marketing, Facebook advertising, geo IP targeting, some anything obscure that you would never have an individual whose full responsibility was to do this very, really crazy thing. And then it's followed up with, can I just have 15 minutes on your on your calendar on Friday at two o'clock? Whoever came up with that, <laughs> huge villain for me. And so the answer is no to anybody that's ever sent me that email. You'll never get a response from me on that ever in a million years. And you probably won't from most business people either. So it's sort of those sort of like sales hacking, ta- sales tactics that are used that I would describe as a villain, I guess. I agree. All right. Our listeners are waiting for your rapid fire villain list. I'm not going to give them a rapid fire list. I put a lot of thought and deep introspection <laughs> into these lists. I mean, most of them connect with culture and society. So come on, Spunky, throw them out. Well, I'll leave one that's sort of just thought provoking. And I'm going to name some names just to kind of give some historical context. But I don't consider them individuals as villains, but it's the things that they spawn in society that I think are really disappointing. So I'm sure you're familiar with the polo shirt. Are you aware of I a guy? Named- proudly. Now, did you in high school? Okay. Now, did you wear a Ralph Lauren polo shirt or a polo shirt? A polo shirt. Needed the pony. Okay. So there was a guy named Lewis Lacey. Ever heard of Lewis Lacey? Mm -mm. I did some history and digging on this to kind of basically understand the evolution of this. And he was a polo star in Argentina in the 1920s. And he was really one of the first people to take the kind of just classic, basic polo white shirt with the collar that they wore to play the sport. 
And he embossed a logo of a little player on a pony on it and sold it in a shop in Argentina. And then in the 30s, Rene Lacoste picks up the idea and starts wearing a shirt that's called Le Crocodile. And he was a he was a tennis player, actually. And then I came to the U.S. in the 50s with the English tailor Jack Izod, who basically then you know turned it into the Izod Lacoste brand that we all know. And then, of course, Ralph Lauren sort of took it to a whole other level of status symbol, you know, so shirt in this little, which I'm actually wearing right now, this little horse as a status symbol. So this idea that the marks that I wear, the marks that I put in my body and I, and I take out into the world are, are metaphors of definitions of who I am and the status that I want to impart into, you know, my social class or what have you. And so just that none of those people are individually our villains, but sort of like that whole movement as it's sort of spawned through culture and society to me is just villainous because it sort of created this whole sort of world around haves and have nots. And we're sort of all walking advertisements for these other people's visions of brands or things they want to sell or, or whatever. And it's really, if you look around, it's almost impossible to find someone wearing a t-shirt that's not embossed with some logo or some tagline or a shirt that isn't marked somewhere with some indicator of status. And I just think it's a really sort of disappointing and has had a really disappointing and dangerous level of driven a lot of consumerism in our society that I find upsetting. So that's my history lesson on logo marks as merchandising and its role as a villain in our American culture. <laughs> More than you ever wanted, right? Whoa. That one, man, you could do a whole dissertation on that. I did not know that the Polo logo preceded the Lacoste. I thought the Lacoste set the trend. I guess you said it did in a, in America. The polo symbol that we know as as Ralph Lauren's is obviously uniquely his. Now, the timing on that, whether it followed Lacoste or, or not, I'm not real sure. I think Lacoste came first. But the idea, I thought it was really interesting that the idea of sort of like just embossing a mark on a shirt as a symbol kind of came from this obscure polo player. I thought that was mm-hmm. really fascinating that you could really Well, it used there. to be, and I remember when those first came out, it's like, what's wrong with your shirt? The tags go on the inside, <laughs> yeah. not the outside. But your point is spot on because just look at sports marketing. And if you take soccer in particular, there are NASCAR, cycling, hockey. I mean, the boards are just covered with ads. I mean, it's anywhere there's real estate for a logo, people will buy it as a result of that started at all. That's interesting. Well, we've come to this belief system too, that logo somehow defines us or defines our success. And I even think through when Ohio State migrated to Nike as their primary apparel provider years and years ago, by 20, 30 years ago. And the first time they, they sort of put that Nike mark on their uniforms, that was like a big status symbol at the time. It was like, it was like a statement to the world that you were one of the, the elite programs because Nike wasn't you know, merchandising every school at that point in time, right? And so it was mm-hmm. all of a sudden, it was a status symbol for them. And you know, so you think about mark as status symbol, either for a company, a sports team, a person. And, and it's really disappointing kind of how far we've come in terms of making ourselves maybe over-consumered in that regard. And so I just think that there's a lot of villainy to be spread around in that journey. But uh, I just thought it was more interesting to kind of to look into some of the history about how that came to be. Yeah. Well, some of our listeners are going to definitely disagree with you. And I would say a lot of the professional services firms that 
are on the links courses with golfers, some of who have been guests on our podcast. We disagree with you, but that's a good one. That's a good one. All right, your next one. We're out of time. <laughs> what? I've been waiting with bated breath. Oh, that was that was my big closer. Um, I mean, I've got more. We are clearly out of time. I mean, do you have one quick one you want to throw in before we wrap? Super Bowl ads. <laughs> you started by talking about marketing approaches that have jumped the shark. And I believe Super Bowl ads have jumped the shark. There used to be a time when those were creative and meaningful and started conversations. I think now with the combination of social media, pre-release, and just our political climate, I just find them annoying. I really wish the Super Bowl ads would, and the hype around them would just go away. <laughs> we could get back to just watching football. And instead of a big band production show at halftime, just give me a high school marching band for 10 minutes and let's get on with the game. I'd throw the whole Super Bowl in with the Super Bowl ads. It's one of those things that marketing is ruined and it trickles down to everywhere else in, in marketing. Well, I'll add to that for literally 30 seconds and maybe we'll come back to the villains again in the future. But I think you could kind of take it one there further and, and really just say the NFL. <laughs> <laughs> I'll leave it at that. We should put a wrap to the to the marketing villains episode. I think now we've got two episodes on the heroes, one episode on the villains. I think we still have more on the heroes side. We probably still have more on the villains side. I'll look forward to talking to you next month and hope our listeners enjoy their short hiatus and we'll welcome you back in September. So thanks for your time. See you, Jeff. See you, buddy. Thank you for listening to Rattle and Pedal, divergent thoughts on marketing and growing professional services firms. Find content related to this episode at rattleandpedal.com. Rattle and Pedal is also available on iTunes and Stitcher.